Amen. Is your soul not encouraged? Uh, do you not wish you could sing even louder? Would you wish you like two voices, maybe a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise? I mean, it's just uh, so much to be thankful for today. Um, you could go home right now and your soul be blessed and minister to. And that's not what you should do, but you could. You could do that. And so open your Bibles to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. So we continue on through this gospel. The Christian life, the true Christian life, not the falsely professed Christian life, is a life of faith. Some of you learned a simple song growing up, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And uh, that song is absolutely 100% true. That's, that's the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a follower of Jesus, someone who listens and obeys the master. But the only reason you would obey him is because you trust him completely. True obedience cannot come any other way than out of a heart of, of faith, a heart of trust. Trust and obey. If you trust, you will Obey, and where you fail to obey, you are demonstrating at a fundamental level a problem of trust. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about faith. J.C. Ryle said this, Faith is the key to success in Christian warfare. Unbelief is the sure road to defeat. Once let faith languish and decay, and all our graces will languish with it. Courage, patience, Long-suffering and hope will soon wither and dwindle away. Faith is the root on which they all depend. So the Bible says repeatedly, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how we live. And so today, we'll be looking at faith from Matthew 17. Before we dig into the scripture, let's pray together. Father, our faith must be in you. We must be absolutely dependent upon you. And in this moment, we are praying because that's what we need. We need you to work in your word, by your spirit, to transform our hearts, to save those who are unsaved, to bring new life to those who are still dead in their sins, to give faith to those who have trusted in you but are now doubting. We've lacked courage long-suffering and patience because we lack faith. And so, Lord, faith is a gift from you. May you give it to us this morning. May you grant, us to, grant it to us by your grace. And strengthen us for the tasks that lay ahead for your name's sake. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Matthew 17, starting in verse 14. I'll read through verse 20. Please follow along in your Bible. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. 
Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is God's holy revelation, his glorious revelation to us. Listen to it this morning. The theme is this, King Jesus teaches us about mountain-moving faith. King Jesus teaches us about mountain-moving faith. Is there not anything more exciting than moving mountains? I mean, last week, I'm sure in your walk with Christ, you have moved many mountains. You have said to all kinds of mountains, from, move from here to there. And so there's nothing more exciting than coming to church and hearing again about mountain-moving faith and how that can change your life. <laughs> this is one of those topics that has just so many uh, caricatures among Christianity and the different uh, denominations and different ideas of understanding it. We are, though, can, and I, I don't want to say this unapologetically, we cannot move away from the idea that there is mountain-moving faith. And uh, I know that uh, those in the charismatic circles have, have owned some of these, these themes, and some of us have shied away from these things because of our d struggle with how they've been applied or how they've been interpreted or what that means, but, but the truth is the truth. King Jesus is going to teach us this morning about mountain-moving faith. Jesus' ministry has entered a new phase, and it entered that back at the end of chapter 16 with Peter's great profession about who Jesus Christ is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Christ has moved into a discipleship phase where he is primarily focused on the rest of his earthly ministry, focused on his followers, on his disciples. And therefore, this narrative has less to do with the miracle and more to do with the lesson for his disciples. And disciples, again, are those who are already following Jesus. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, this message is not for you. You must be a follower of Jesus for this to apply to you. And though there will be gospel implications and, and salvation implications, uh, the, the, the meat of this message is for the followers of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see in this passage is the occasion for the lesson. The occasion for the lesson. And when they came to the crowd, so they have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. So this, this might seem, it might appear like just another healing miracle of Jesus. We've, we've seen these things before. Jesus has done tremendous things before. He has cast out demons before. He's healed people before. So it seems like, well, just another example. But if we understand the intent of what is here, then we have to look where the writer of the gospel, Matthew, is shining the spotlight. It might appear as if the spotlight is on this man and more importantly, his son, because it's very easy for us to get caught up in the miraculous. We love to see epileptics heal. We love to see demons cast out. That is amazing things, and we can focus on that, but that's not Matthew's focus. First of all, where is Matthew's focus? It's always on, you can say it out loud, I'm, I am waiting for an answer. Where is the focus primarily and ultimately, first of all? Who's it on? Jesus. First of all, in this passage, don't see the epileptic or his father. See Jesus. We always have to start by seeing Jesus. So what do we learn about Jesus? First of all, that's the first question. Who is Jesus? 
What do we learn about him from this passage? First of all, we learn that Jesus is merciful. Jesus is merciful. What does the man ask? Lord, have mercy on my son. And what does Jesus do? He has mercy on his son. He has mercy on this father. He has mercy on this son and he heals him. But notice this as we think about what this father asked. We must understand that healing can never be demanded. Healing is always based on the mercy of God and not the justification of the person asking. Therefore, like the father, we must humbly plead for God to be merciful. As sinners, every one of us deserves nothing, including health. So we like to think in our self-centeredness, in our human-centeredness, that it isn't fair that some good people are sick. Maybe some good people right here with us. Maybe some good people who can't be with us because of their sickness. But this is an upside-down understanding of mankind. The Bible clearly says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all evil, rebellious, wicked sinners deserving of nothing good, including health. So every good thing in our lives, every breath of air is a gracious gift we don't deserve. So some of you have heard people say this, how are you doing today? And the answer that comes sometimes is better than I deserve. Now, of course, that can be overdone to the point of irritation at times, but it is great. It's exactly correct. Every one of us is doing better than we deserve. You say, you don't know, Pastor, how bad it is for me in my life. I say, yep. Even if I understood completely how bad it was for you, guess what? You're still doing better than you deserve. Why is that? Because if you got, that's probably not proper English, but correct me later. If you received what you deserved, what would you be receiving right now? The punishment of God eternally in the lake of fire. And every moment outside of that is from the good, gracious hand of God. Every breath, every day of life, every moment, everything we have is from, that, from his hand. What truly is unfair, if we understand what the Bible teaches about mankind, what truly is unfair is that some people are healthy. When you're healthy, that's unfair. Why? Because you don't deserve health. I'm not talking about you're sick and you look at someone who's well and you say, it's unfair that I'm sick while they're healthy. No, being healthy is unfair because we deserve nothing. That's the point. Yet, yet Jesus is full of mercy. God is abundantly, generously merciful. So come to him for healing today. Primarily come to him for spiritual healing. Every person who cries out to Jesus Christ for spiritual healing, every person who humbly comes kneeling, bowing before Jesus and asking for mercy will receive spiritual mercy. And some of us who come for physical mercy and for healing will also receive physical healing and the mercy of God in this moment. So come to him asking for his mercy, realizing you don't deserve it and he doesn't owe it to you. But in his mercy, he heals every person who comes to him for spiritual healing and many who come to him for physical healing. Jesus is merciful. Secondly, Jesus has ultimate authority. Jesus has ultimate authority. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. Any and every time that Jesus commands an evil angel, a demon, they 
always obey. They must obey. And why is that? Because Jesus is God. Jesus has ultimate authority. Thirdly, Jesus is powerful. In his ultimate authority, he has divine power. So therefore, the boy was healed instantly. From that hour, from that very moment, he was no longer an epileptic. It was full and complete healing. See the divine power of Jesus. Isn't it mind-blowing? Just beyond our comprehension. Imagine someone with such a terrible condition walking into a hospital, walking through a hospital from the emergency room and then walking out the front door, instantly, completely healed evermore. Would you walk into that hospital if you were sick? If you were having an issue? I mean, you just walk in, then you walk out, instantly healed, good to go. I mean, can you, you can't imagine. We, we are so removed from the reality of the situation that it becomes ho-hum for us, especially those of us who've been Christians for a long time. We know the stories. We know the Bible. It's just, just awesome. This is divine power. That's who is Jesus. The question is, what was the problem? Because there is a problem in this passage. It's not a problem with Jesus. What is the problem then? Well, first of all, the problem is a demon-possessed son. A demon-possessed son. Notice how the father describes his condition. He says to Jesus, he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, just a little understanding of the Greek text, the original language that the New Testament is written in. The Greek word here is not the word for epilepsy. So in your translation, you might have a different word. In Greek, it is literally translated moonstruck. Have you ever heard of being moonstruck before? You say, no, that's because we don't talk about being moonstruck anymore. Why? Because we understand better scientifically what epilepsy is. We understand seizures. Moonstruck was pointing to the type, a type of madness that the ancients thought was brought on by the moon. We still use the word lunacy. Do you understand how that's connected to the moon? Lunar, lunacy. You're made crazy by the moon. And there is seemingly some evidence to that fact. Just ask teachers, especially teachers in school. When there's a full moon, how's it going to go at school? You say, how does that work? I don't know how that works. I'm not trying to make a case for that. But you can understand the connection between a full moon and crazy people, which is how we get werewolves, right? But that's not biblical either. Thank you, Becky. I just caught you, didn't I? You didn't think I was going to go there. Yep. <laughs> Lunacy. <laughs> Moonstruck. But the idea here in the original language is pointing to the idea of being subject to fits, what we would understand today and, and use the word epilepsy. And so it's proper for a translation to use that word, but we must avoid anachronism, which is reading our modern-day understanding of things from our present-day vantage point back into the Bible. They, didn't, they understood epilepsy. They understood that, and that's why they're not using that term here. So it's not necessarily understood by the original audience that his problem is simply seizures. They understood seizures, but they're connecting his seizures to something else. And what do we know from the text it is? Why, why do his seizures happen at such inopportune times? That's like, how come he always gets a seizure every time there's a fire around? 
if he gets a seizure every time we're near the river or near a lake? Why does he keep getting thrown into from other gospels or falls into the fire and water so regularly? And, and the text makes it explicitly clear. It's because it's a demon who's controlling this boy. And this demon is manifesting these seizures at the worst times. In our modern day understanding of epilepsy, it would be very easy for us to read this passage and do what many theological liberals do with this passage, which is understanding that it can't really be demon possession, can it? Because we know there's no real such thing as evil angels that really inhabit people and cause them to do horrible things. We understand seizures. We understand epilepsy. We understand the problem. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the problem is because I don't really understand it, but some medical people do. And some of you had to have had to deal with that, either personally or with other people, what, what causes seizures. And we know there's a problem in the brain. I think it's a, is it a problem in the brain? Seizure, epilepsy? Is that what it is? Stay with me here. Okay, I need some help. All right, so, yeah, you know, I'm looking towards a medical professional. Hopefully she knows what epilepsy is, what causes it. So I don't, I don't know what it is, but we scientifically know more. So because we scientifically know more, what can we just rule out? We can rule out anything supernatural such as demon possession. But what does the Bible do with those two ideas of the physical manifestation of disease and illness with the spiritual roots of that in this passage? It ties them together. There's a physical manifestation of a demon possession and we can't miss that. We can't rule that out. We, we have to understand it. We are not naturalist materialists believing that all sickness is simply a brokenness of the physical body. As Christians, we are supernaturalists. So we believe that there are some sicknesses and some disease that come from a spiritual problem. Either demon possession or demonic activity or come as a result of sin and God's judgment on sinners. Yet we understand from all of Scripture that not all disease is demonic, not all disease is a punishment for sin, yet, we, from this passage, we understand that some is. Don't forget all of the biblical possibilities for the root of our physical illnesses and problems. That's... The first problem is we have a demon-possessed son. He's having tremendous... He's, I mean, can you imagine? He suffers terribly. I, I can't imagine. Some of you have, have had to deal with sick children. Uh, unbelievable sickness and, and difficulties. Uh, this is such a terrible situation for, this, for the son, but also for this father. And this father is a desperate father. That's the second problem. We have a demon-possessed son, and then we have a desperate father. He is desperate for relief. Apparently, Jesus wasn't available earlier. Probably the idea is, uh, while Jesus was away on the Mount of Transfiguration, this man comes to, to find healing and help for his son, but Jesus isn't available, so here's his disciples. And so he went to the disciples. And that's what he said. I brought him to your disciples. What happened? They could not heal him. So what is the solution? What does Jesus say? Bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. I want you to notice something about this father. Notice that he didn't make the mistake of equating the inability of the disciples with the inability of Jesus. Therefore, he didn't give up. I mean, if the disciples can't do it, can their master do it? I mean, I've come, I've tried, I've sought a solution from the disciples of Jesus, and, and I got 
there was no relief. Received no help. So why would I stick around for more? But he doesn't stop there because he doesn't equate the inability of the disciples with the inability of the Lord. So I want to say to you today, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe everything I'm talking about, especially the idea of demon possession and all this crazy supernatural talk, if you're looking for rescue from the disciples of Jesus, you are looking in the wrong place. If you came this morning looking to help from us Christians, you, you've, you've come to the wrong place in one sense because we are not the solution. We're going to tell you, look to Jesus. Go to Jesus. It is only the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that can rescue. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save. The church isn't the answer to mankind's problems. Now, maybe you've heard me even say opposite. So let me say what I mean by that. The church isn't the answer, but the true church knows the answer and will point you to the answer, and the answer is Jesus. And so in one sense, we are not the answer, but we are the instrument of pointing others to the answer. We know where the healing comes from. We know where the help comes from. We all have a cancer of sin destroying us spiritually now and will destroy us eternally. And so we know the cure. We are not the cure, but we can tell you where to find the cure, what the cure is, and how you can be saved from your sin and born again by trusting in Jesus. Don't trust in the church. Trust in Jesus. And the church needs to hear that as much as the world needs to hear that. I also want to tell you this. Religion isn't the answer. That's what a lot of people think. We've tried everything. I've tried this. I've tried that. And, and maybe you've realized that the, that the answers out among the secularists, the supposedly non-believers, those who don't believe there's a God, don't believe in supernatural things, maybe you tried some of their answers and you realize their answers fail. And so maybe you've come around to thinking, well, maybe there's, there's some help and maybe there is some value to religion. But religion doesn't rescue. Religion doesn't save. Religion in and of itself is, is no help at all. But true religion will point you to the one who rescues, the one who saves. And that is Jesus. Are you, are you starting to pick up on it? I, as the longer I go on this theme, hopefully you will, more of you will be able to give the answer. All right? So stick with me. I'll try again. Morality isn't the answer. Becoming a good person, turning over a new leaf, starting over, New Year's resolutions, those are not the answer. Morality isn't the answer because morality doesn't save. Yet, it will point you to the basis for all morality, the lawgiver who is Jesus, the great lawgiver. So morality says there must be a lawgiver, and that lawgiver is Jesus. So morality will point you to the answer if you get past the conduit. Good works aren't the answer, but they will point you to the one who is good and does good, and that is Yes, finally. Better, better. Probably as good as I'm going to get from Baptists who don't like speaking in church. <laughs> a little mountain-moving excitement here, maybe. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the answer. There's a third problem. It's a powerless group of disciples. A powerless group of disciples. And Jesus is always the, the, the main focus 
But he's not always the theme in the sense of what the passage is trying to draw. So here's where we really get the theme and the idea here is the problem is with the disciples, a powerless group of disciples. And the problem is not with the son or the father ultimately. That's just the occasion for the lesson. Focus in on the discipleship lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. And so it has to do with the disciples. Why can't they do what Jesus gave them the authority to do? Why can't they do what they've done before? Why can't they cast this demon out? Back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and 8 are on the screen. And he called to him his 12 disciples. And before he gave them authority over unclean spirits. That's demons. That's evil spirits. To cast them out. And also to heal every disease and every affliction. He tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. So he authorizes them and gives them authority, and then he commands them to do this, and they have done it in the past, read the other Gospels, but now they can't do it here. What's wrong? What's the problem? But before we get to the problem, what is Jesus' reaction to the fact that his disciples could not heal? What does he say in verse 17? O faithless and twisted, O faithless and perverted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This is Jesus' description of the problem. Now the question that commentators have and pastors have, and if you read it, you have, who is he referring to? Is he referring to the Father? Is he referring to the disciples? Is he referring to just the generation and the people around him? I believe he's referring to the disciples as representatives of this generation. So the thought is this. If his closest followers don't have enough faith or the right faith, what hope is there for the whole generation? If those who know me best have been authorized and commanded don't have faith to do what I've told them to do and authorized them to do, what Hope is there for the entire generation. If I don't find faith in my closest followers, where will I find faith? That seems to be the point. And then he says, you know, how much longer do I have to put up with this? It just sounds to me, and maybe because it's, it's kind of personal, it just sounds to me like an exasperated and frustrated parent. How many times do I have to tell you? How many more things do I have to go through? This is... <laughs> so if you want to quote the scripture, parents, you know, when you get exasperated, just say, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And they say, that sounds pretty dramatic. I'm just being like Jesus. What would Jesus do? That's what he would do. <laughs> so that's the occasion for the lesson. So what is the lesson? The lesson on faith. The lesson on faith. So that's just, in a sense, we, we can't miss what happened, but it's, it's the, the occasion is the setup for what is really important and what Jesus really wants to teach, and that is the lesson on faith. So after that circumstance, after they've left that area, then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Now, they came to him privately, and some questions came to my mind. Did they understand that Jesus was talking to them as faithless and twisted? Were they embarrassed and afraid of what Jesus would say publicly, so they waited until they were alone? Have you ever had a, a problem, but you didn't want to ask the question in class? You wanted to wait till you were by yourself? You want to talk to the teacher yourself because you didn't want everyone to hear your question or to think you were foolish? And so there's a lot of reasons to that. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't say. 
But they come and they come with this question, why could we not cast it out? Isn't that a great question? It's a great question. Very important question. The question here is, why were the disciples powerless? And, and there could have been different reasons. Maybe this demon was just such a great demon. Maybe he's just a really powerful demon. Maybe, uh, maybe there's, all, there's other answers to the question. And so Jesus' answer is very important because he's going to tell them. He says, because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. And then he goes on to tell them what they needed. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if, if what? If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, then what could you do? Well, not only could you cast out this demon, but you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, there to here. Question, isn't the mustard seed the smallest seed known to the disciples? Isn't the mustard seed a little seed? Is the problem that they were faithless, as he said earlier, oh, faithless generation, was it the problem that they were faithless or that they had little faith? He said both. He said, you're faithless and you have little faith. If all it takes to move mountains is a little mustard seed faith, then why wasn't their little faith, as Jesus said they had, enough to cast out this demon? So the primary question for us who are trying to get to the meaning of the text so we can apply it, properly, apply it properly to our lives is this. Is it a problem of the amount of faith or the kind of faith? We know that the apostles, the disciples, had some faith because they tried to cast out the demon. They tried to do what God had authorized them to do, what Jesus had commanded them to do, and Jesus confirms that they had faith. Jesus says, because of your little faith. Oh, look, we have faith. They did. They had little faith. Now, we read this, and we focus on the word little. And it makes perfect sense, because it appears to be the problem, little faith. We also like to focus on the word little instead of the word faith, because we are tempted, or we usually think of all faith as the same kind of faith. We read the Bible, and we even think even in our own world that faith is all the same. Faith is faith. So we see the word little faith, and we don't focus on the fact that they had little faith. What would the problem be with faith? We focus on the word little. So we tend to think that all faith is the same kind of faith. We tend to think that all faith, especially in the Bible, is true faith, living faith, accurate faith. But if the problem is how much faith, then wouldn't Jesus say that what they needed was more faith? Greater faith? You have mustard seed faith, but what you need is watermelon seed faith. You've got the faith the size of a cucumber seed, but what you need is the bean seed faith. Wouldn't there be some sort of comparison to the size? Why would he say you have little faith and then talk about them having the littlest amount of faith the size of a mustard seed? That's was my... I beat my head on this question over and over. You barely have notes in your bulletin because I was struggling with coming up with the answer. If faith, the size of the grain of a mustard seed, can move mountains, then why couldn't their little faith cast out this demon? Now, some commentators, men I highly respect, believe Jesus points to the mustard seed because although it begins as the smallest seed, it grows into the largest garden plant, what Jesus taught in Matthew 13. 
And therefore, they understand this passage is saying the point would be is that they needed their little faith to grow larger. And once it was large enough, like the full orb faith, it would be the largest garden plant and they could do what they needed to do. So your faith is just in seed-like form and it needs to blossom. I disagree with that. My contention is that their problem was not the amount of faith, but the kind of faith. Their faith was little, but that wasn't the problem. The smallest faith of the right kind can move mountains. If you needed blossoming faith, growing faith, great faith, then why would Jesus say your faith is little and then all you need is little faith? It, it doesn't add up for me theologically, contextually. Because here's the promise, and if we miss this, then we, we miss what I believe the promise is. Nothing is impossible to accomplish for those who have the smallest amount of true faith. That's what I believe Jesus is teaching here. Nothing is impossible. If you have mustard seed faith, the tiniest faith, the smallest seed known to the apostles, if you have that size of a faith, you will say, move from here to there to a mountain, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And what happens is, if we miss what Jesus is saying here, we suck all of the power of this promise out. And we say, well, most things aren't impossible for us, or there's a few things that aren't impossible. Jesus makes it explicitly clear. If you have the smallest kind of faith, the right and true faith, you will have nothing impossible in your life. So the amount of faith isn't the question. That's how so many of us have read this passage, understood this passage, maybe still today. Some people think if I just had a little more faith, then we could accomplish more. Actually, I believe this text is pointing to the exact opposite. It's not how much faith we have. It's what kind of faith we have. So D.A. Carson says this, at a superficial level, the disciples did have faith. They expected to be able to exercise the demon. They had long been successful in this work, and now they are surprised by their failure. Do you hear that? Why couldn't we do it? Why do they say, why couldn't they do it? If they hadn't been able to do it before, they wouldn't be surprised. But they've done it many times before, so now the fact that they can't do it is weird to them. What's the problem here? So he says, they had long been successful, and now they are surprised by their failure. But their faith is poor and shoddy. Jesus tells his disciples that when they, what they need is not giant faith, tiny faith will do, but true faith. Faith that, out of a deep personal trust, expects God to work. So his answer is not, you need giant faith. He says, you just need tiny faith, but you need true faith. So when Jesus says that we can have mountain-moving faith, Jesus isn't speaking literally. He isn't actually physically talking about moving mountains around. This is a metaphor for doing the impossible. That's why he follows it up with, Nothing will be impossible. Moving mountains was a way for saying impossible to do. And so you can just think of how we use words, that create things that are just impossible. We have different phrases for that. It also has to do with removing difficulties. The mountains in the way. It's a huge obstacle in your life, but you could remove it. So William Barclay says this. If you have faith enough, 
All difficulties can be solved, and even the hardest tasks can be accomplished. Faith in God is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which block their path. I love that. This is what I believe Jesus is explicitly saying. If you have faith, right kind of faith. He says faith enough. He's still focused on the size. I'm going to move past that to this. If you have the right kind of faith, even the hardest task can be accomplished. Faith in God, the right object, is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which block their path. Now notice what kind of faith this is. I want to, I want to try to explain some of these things because we have so many wrong understandings and so I'll take some time here. It isn't faith in keeping bad things from happening. As in, if I had just a little faith, I could say to this cancer, go away, and it would be thrown into the ocean. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not talking about keeping bad things from happening or changing bad things in your life, so to speak. This is about what we can do in serving Jesus not in what we can keep from happening to us while serving Jesus. I want to serve Jesus and have no problems. If I had enough faith, I could say to my problems in my life, be gone, and they would be gone. I could say to my debt, be gone, and it would be gone. I could say to my illness, be gone, and it would be gone. And it seems to fit because the problem is epilepsy. But no, the real problem wasn't epilepsy, was it? The real problem was spiritual. And notice that it wasn't the epileptic boy, the demon-possessed son, who Jesus is talking to about little faith. Who's he talking to? The apostles. It wasn't their problem that they needed great faith for. It was someone else's problem. So this has nothing to do with personally healed by your own faith, large or small. How many times have you heard faith healers or charismatics or people of that like in nature say, if you just had more faith, I could heal you. And isn't that exactly the opposite of what this passage is teaching? Who are the people who have little faith? It's not the person with the illness. It's the person with the power. The problem is with the faith healer, if we want to put it in today's terms. The problem is the person who's trying to do the miracle can't do the miracle. And what's the problem? It's their faith. Not the faith of the person. Not the faith of the son or the faith of the father. It's the faith of the healer. I want you to, I want you to let that sink in. Because when people twist the scripture, sometimes they miss what's right in front of their face. Don't miss what's right in front of your face here. It's not the problem of the faith of the one who has the illness. It's the problem of the one who's supposed to be taking care of the illness. So it has to do with our ministry, our work in serving Christ. It isn't about healing. It's about doing the impossible. The smallest amount of true faith is enough to do the impossible. Hear me clearly. The smallest amount of true faith is enough to do the impossible. And it's in serving Christ, in doing what he has called us to do. If you have just the smallest faith, you will do impossible things. Not keep impossible bad things from happening or change your impossible circumstances in your own life. It has to do with serving Christ. Let me dig into what true faith is. So what is true faith? So I want to give you the promise but the focus of that promise is the promise connected to true faith. 
It's not the amount of faith, it's the right kind of faith. So what is true faith? Give you a few ideas, there's more we could dig into, but just a couple here. True faith has the proper object, Jesus Christ. True faith must have the proper object, Jesus Christ. This is not faith in faith. And this is how so many people talk about faith. Just listen to the songs in our culture. Everybody has faith. Trust me, the Bible teaches that. Everybody has faith. And so they talk about having faith. And if you just have faith, you can accomplish anything. Typically when they say that, where is their faith? In themselves. If you believe it, you can achieve it. Believe what? If you believe what? Anybody know what the it is in that? Whatever you want it to be. Because it's all about what you believe and your belief will change things. That is new age mysticism and false theology. That is wickedness from the pit of hell. Your faith in yourself will somehow cause things to happen. And if you listen to Oprah Winfrey and watch her on any show or watch her in the past, that was her fundamental belief. Paganism, mysticism, the idea that somehow you are your own rescue, you are your own savior. That kind of faith doesn't save. So some of you would understand this. You've got to have faith, faith, faith. And if you spend the rest of the day singing that song, you're welcome. <laughs> faith in whom? Faith in what? The only faith that moves anything is faith in Jesus Christ. The only faith that moves anything is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in just anything. It's faith in Christ. So Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things. Amen? I can do all things. Can you do all things? No, you can't. Neither can I. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. I can do everything that Christ empowers me to do. Do you believe that? Is that faith in yourself? Is that faith in faith? Or is that faith in Christ? It's faith in Christ. So what was wrong with the disciples' faith? Did they try to cast out the demon in their own strength? It doesn't say. Did they try to cast out the demon simply trusting in the method of exorcism? It doesn't say. But we must remember that faith in Christ is demonstrated in dependence on Christ. Faith in Christ is demonstrated in dependence. I can, apart from him, I can do nothing. You can do nothing. We can do nothing. And dependence on Christ is primarily demonstrated in prayer. So when you stop praying, you have demonstrated just by that simple action that you are not trusting in Christ. When you try to accomplish what God has called you to do and you're not praying, you're not depending on him through prayer, then you're trying to do it in some faithless way. Secondly, true faith has the proper foundation. True faith has the proper foundation. Christ commands and Christ's authority. So true faith is demonstrated in dependence on Christ, and that's just demonstrated in prayer. But secondly, faith in Christ is demonstrated in using God-given methods. God-given methods. Faith in self, faith in mankind, faith in the wisdom of the collective is demonstrated in dependence on human wisdom, human methods, human techniques. Say the right words, do the right hand motions, abracadabra, kalakazoom, and boom, 
We can exercise the demon. As long as we have the right water, the cross, the words. You've seen the movies, haven't you? We can't get the demon out. What do we need? Just a little holy water will do. What about the person who's got the holy water? Doesn't matter. As long as you say the right words, do the right things, we can, we can cast out demons. Is that biblical? No. It's not biblical. So it, it, it's not wisdom, technique, human methods. We can, as Christians, divorce the proper means, the proper means, the God-given means, from the God who empowers the means. He never gives us the methods as a reason for trusting in the method. Jesus says that he saves people through the proclamation of the word. So what do we have faith in? Do we have faith in the preaching of the word? Or do we have faith in the Christ who empowers the preaching of the word? So we can get so married to the method and so focused on the God-given biblical method that we forget that faith never goes in the method. Faith goes in the God who's given the method. Now, should we use unbiblical methods? No, because now we've made two mistakes. We've trusted in ourselves outside of the biblical method. But if we use biblical methods and we say, hey, we just trust in preaching to save souls. Well, we trust God's method of, that he's given to us of preaching to save souls, of proclaiming the gospel to save souls. But is our trust in the method? And when our trust is in the method, then you know what we will do? We will all get together get our tracks in our hands, go downtown Owasso, we will preach and we will hand out tracks and we will believe that in preaching the gospel, we will see souls saved. And what won't we do before we go out? We won't pray. We won't pray before we go out. We won't pray while we're going out. We won't pray the weeks before we go out. We won't pray fervently. We won't pray in trusting Christ. We'll just think that the method is what works. And then we'll go out and we'll hand out tracks and we'll do all those things and no one comes to Christ and what do we say? Well, I guess God's method doesn't work. Is it the problem with the method, God-given methods? Or is it a problem of faith, true faith, that trust in Christ's commands and Christ's authority? When we trust in Christ's commands, we do it God's way. He never gives us the methods as a reason for trusting in the methods. He gives us the method as a test to see if we trust in him. If we trust in God, we will trust in his methods, and we will demonstrate that trust by using his methods. Yet, when we trust in ourselves, we will use God's methods in our own strength. So we will separate the God-given method from the God-necessary wisdom and power that is needed to use the method. We will trust solely in the method and guarantee divine results divorced from divine dependence. I know because I've read the books. You want to grow a great church? You want to grow a big church? Read this book and do it this way, and you will. Guaranteed success, grow a great church. Ever heard of purpose-driven life? Purpose-driven church? Seeker-sensitive? Seeker-friendly? I mean, you can just, you can read the books. You stay in ministry long enough, you'll see. If I stay in ministry long enough, it'll probably come back around. I'm not quite that old. But here's the point. So I quit reading those books. Instead, I read books that give God's method of preaching and discipleship and evangelism. I read all those books. And you know what I can do? I can read the same books that promise guaranteed success just with God-given methods, biblical methods, instead of unbiblical methods. And, and I've, I've corrected half the problem, haven't I? 
But if I'm not using God-given methods with God-given dependence, divine dependence, then there are no results guaranteed. And by the way, using God's method doesn't guarantee any specific results in many, in many places. So we must trust not only in the method that God gives, but in the God who gives the method, divinely dependent on him in all things. And we find out how quickly we move from divine dependence to human dependence, even God-given techniques and, and things that God has told us to do, when we recognize how prayerless we are. And I speak for myself. How prayerless we are. We are faithless, and it's demonstrated in prayerlessness. Now, we must have the right methods, but the problem isn't the method in this case, is it? Is the problem the method? It can't be the method, or Jesus said, you did, the, you did it wrong. Let me show you how to do it right. Now, in, in uh, accompanying passages, it says, well, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting, or this kind only comes out through prayer. And some say, oh, look, it, they didn't pray right. They didn't fast enough. What is prayer and fasting in a demonstration of? One thing. Divine dependence. It wasn't that they didn't pray enough or they didn't fast enough. It was that they weren't dependent on Christ. And it was demonstrated in their lack of prayer and their lack of fasting. Depend on me. Do I have to pray for six days, six hours, six minutes? How much fasting? He doesn't say because it's not the method. It's what the method shows in dependence on Christ. Don't get so caught up in making sure you do every method right the methods are there to demonstrate dependence. Be dependent. It'll show up in those ways. Do them and trust Christ. Now, the disciples had faith in Jesus. Didn't they? Did the disciples have faith in Jesus? Were they trusting in Jesus? Yes, in case you were wondering. But they didn't always have faith in Jesus. They doubted, which is a lack of faith in the moment. Now, as Christians, biblical Christians, we must understand that there are different kinds of doubt that the Bible talks about. There's a kind of doubt, the first kind of doubt, that is doubt that rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Bible says this is who Jesus is, and I say, no, that's not who Jesus is. I reject it. I doubt that. I don't believe the Bible to be true. The second kind of doubt is doubt that keeps us from following Jesus in the moment. We trust in Jesus for salvation. We sing the songs we sang this morning, but in the moment, we, we doubt what we need in that moment. It doesn't mean that you stop trusting in Christ for salvation from sin, so this doubt doesn't lead us to a loss of salvation, but it leads to a loss of wisdom, power, help. So we trust in Christ for salvation, but we don't trust him for evangelism. We trust Christ for salvation, but we don't trust him for healing. We trust Christ for salvation, but we don't trust him for, for discipleship, for raising our kids, for whatever accomplishment, whatever work we need to do. So Matthew Henry says this, As far as faith falls short of its due strength, vigor, and activity, it may truly be said, there is unbelief. So lack of faith, doubt is unbelief. Many are chargeable with unbelief who yet are not to be called unbelievers. This is why this passage is for us as Christians. We lack faith, not faith for salvation, but faith for the ministry God has called us to do. We don't doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We doubt that he will help us sustain us that his promises are true in this moment. We doubt, but not our unbelievers. Notice the different kinds of doubt. And so this lesson, the lesson has to be taught that to stop trusting and therefore depending on Christ for everything has consequences. If we stop trusting and depending on Christ for everything he's called us to do, there will be consequences. We will not be able to do the ministry Christ has called us to do. 
If we were to truly succeed in our own wisdom and strength, we would learn never to need him. If we succeeded in our own wisdom and strength without divine dependence, we would learn that we never needed him. And so sometimes God's great grace to you is failure over and over and over. Failure to do what he's called you to do because you're not depending on him and you need faith. Just, just the tiniest amount of true faith. That's what you need. And so if we were to truly succeed with human means, we would just depend on ourselves forever. So the disciples here, their disciples' failure is a valuable lesson, an extremely valuable lesson. Your failures are also valuable lessons. They teach you that you need Christ for everything. That's why he gets the glory for everything. We know, listen carefully, we know that casting out demons was God's will for his apostles. We know that because he had given them the authority and commanded them to do it. They didn't have to say, when the man brought his son, they didn't have to say, we need to pray about this. Because we don't know if God wants us to cast out this demon or not. We don't know if we have the authority or not. We don't know if we're called to this or not. No, they already knew that. Why? Because he'd already given them all that. All they had to do was trust and obey. And they would be happy in Jesus. But they obeyed, but didn't trust. And therefore, they were unhappy in Jesus. Now, has God given us the authority to cast out demons? Depending on your theological understanding, you would go there. My understanding of the scripture is an emphatic, no, God has not given us the authority to do that, nor has he commanded us to do that. I'm not saying that there are times where we might not be used by God to do that. So please understand how I'm, I'm going to phrase that. But for them, because they were commanded, they were authorized, it was a matter of faith, not a matter of God's will. And if it isn't God's will for us to do anything, then it isn't a matter of faith. But where it is God's will, therefore faith becomes the issue. Wherever God has authorized us and commanded us to do things and those things are not being accomplished, what's our problem? Is it God's authority? Is it God's will? Is it God's command? Is it God's promises? Is it God's power? Or is it our wrong faith? The smallest amount of true faith will accomplish the impossible. That's what Christ is saying. So in our lives, why aren't the obstacles being removed from what God is, what's in front of us? Why aren't impossible things still impossible for us to accomplish? Is it simply the fact that it isn't God's will or that we are faithless? And if God has commanded us and authorized us to do something and it isn't being accomplished, the problem is not with God or his promise or his power, but with our wrong kind of faith, if we have any faith at all in that moment. So what does God bring to mind for you? Where do you know from scripture that God has authorized you and commanded you and things aren't being accomplished? There are so many possibilities. I, I'm just want, I want you to be thinking about it. Where is the impossible, still the impossible, in your ministry and what God has called you to do? And connect that to the problem of faith. So if you're not a Christian, it's simple. Trust in Jesus Christ. Obey every command. 
trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, obey his every command. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy, and you will be happy in Christ. As a believer, no task will be impossible to accomplish according to his will, depending on his power. No task will be impossible to accomplish according to his will, depending on his power. So Matthew Henry summarizes it this way. An act of faith can remove mountains, not of itself, but in the virtue of a divine power engaged by a divine promise, both which faith fastens upon. Depend on divine power only based upon a divine promise, and that faith will accomplish the impossible. Will we trust Christ, depend on Christ, and do what we consider to be impossible, seeing obstacles removed from what God has placed in front of us? Let's pray. Father, work in us. Cause us to be men and women, people of great faith. But Lord, that's not actually the call. The call is make us people of the smallest amount of true faith. Show us that it's not a problem of amount, it's a problem of kind. And cause us to have the right kind of faith, trusting you to use your methods to do the impossible in the world in which we live today. And you will receive the glory and we will give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.